Welcome to the Wilderness Medic Podcast. Check out our website at www.thewildernessmedic.com. Expedition resources, wilderness medicine blog, and much more. Hi, welcome to the Wilderness Medic Podcast. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by uh, Dr. Naomi Dodds who uh, is based up in Scotland and is an anaesthetics trainee. Um, we met up um, at the uh, Royal College of uh, Physicians and Surgeons in, in Glasgow, um, as Naomi uh, is a tutor on the Diploma in Expedition of Wilderness Medicine up there, which I did a few years ago. So, yes, Naomi, thanks for joining me. How's, how's it all going today? Hello, Daniel. Yes, thanks for asking me to join you on your podcast today. Um, it's all good up in Scotland. We're just dying to see winter come in, which is exciting, um, but all is good. Oh, yeah. That'll be good. Lots of winter skills and exciting trips. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's a great place to be, really, um, in the winter, um, especially when uh, travel is a little bit more limited now, so I'm feeling very privileged to live up here. Yeah, no, definitely. And I guess winter is going to be sort of one of the things and one of the themes that we're going to going to discuss have a bit of a, a think about sort of uh, polar issues and some of your involvement with mountain rescue and that sort of thing and also have a I suppose have a think more generally about uh, as you say how COVID's impacting on expedition work and talk about some of your experiences there because you've done a lot of a lot of cool things in the past. Yes, yeah, I have been lucky to uh, squeeze a lot into a short space of time. So happy to talk about some of those things. Very good. Yeah. And so so at the moment, what have you been doing? It's mainly, have you mainly been uh, working with COVID at the moment, is it? Yeah, so um, I'm an anaesthetic trainee in the north of Scotland. Um, I had taken a break from anaesthetics training um, to do some more expedition work, um, but COVID has brought me back into the hospital, uh, but still managing to freelance a little bit outside of that. So I'm a summer mountain leader, winter mountain leader, and an international mountain leader. Um, So I do work in the kind of expedition and outdoor industry along with my medical work. So I'm still managing to keep a bit of that up um, as work's starting to come back now, travel and um, things are a bit more possible with COVID. Yeah, that's good. And and you started off mainly in sort of more of a sort of expedition leader background, isn't it, before you then sort of added the med- medicine aspect to it? Yeah, that's right. So I um, initially I studied psychology. I went to university. I didn't really know what I wanted to do at that point, um, but I knew that I quite enjoyed traveling um, and I'd been on some expeditions at school um, and continued to um, work at leading expeditions whilst I was doing my psychology degree. Um, and through that, learned a little bit more about first aid. I'd done a few advanced um, first aid courses because I was leading expeditions overseas um, and became more and more interested in medicine um, and then studied medicine as a graduate um, and And that's kind of brought me to where I am today, I suppose. So I've done things a little bit differently in that the expedition stuff came first and then I've added on the medicine afterwards. Yeah, and I think that's that's quite useful in some ways, though, because, I mean, I think I'm sort of in in the opposite of that. And I did medicine, but the kind of outdoor skills side, which is also really important to have as an expedition medic, I'm sort of always conscious that there's a bit of catch up to be played. So I'm, I'm still trying to sort out all my QMDs for just your your normal mountain leader, let alone all, all the other ones that you've got. But uh, I think it just shows that, you know, there's lots of different ways of, of doing it, I guess. 
Yeah, yeah, lots of different ways of doing it. Um, and ultimately, you need the two. So you need medicine and you need a good understanding of the environments that you're working in. So whichever way around you end up doing it. Um, but for me, it worked really well because I was already quite comfortable working in the outdoors and being overseas on expeditions. And then it was kind of an easy transition then to make to add on some of the medicine on top of that. Yeah, and I suppose moving on from that, what, what do you reckon the... I suppose the most exciting or most interesting trip you've you've been on is um it's always a difficult question that people ask um I've been on yeah. so many different trips um into lots of different environments from uh, high altitude trips to the Himalaya and South America um to pretty wild expeditions in Alaska um and Greenland in very remote places um, and also some tropical stuff um as well in some of the jungles around the world um I think my Favorite places are those very wild, very remote places. So probably Alaska has to be one of my all-time top expedition locations. What do you think it is that it, it sort of draws you to these kind of, they sound more more often that you're going to colder places rather than, uh, yeah, rather than the jungles yeah. and they said you've been there? Um, yeah, my so cold mountainous places are definitely my favourite places to be. Um, and I think uh, the more remote you are, the more you have to rely upon your own skill set and your own ability. Um, there's no one that can easily get you out of a situation. Um, often evacuation just isn't possible in some of these places. Um, and it just added, adds to the challenge, I suppose, of the expedition um, and makes it more enjoyable and more rewarding uh, once you have a successful trip. Absolutely. I guess it puts a lot of emphasis on the um, all the pre-expedition planning and the importance of that. If, as you say, you know, your chances of sorting out evacuation is, is quite, quite difficult. What were you doing out in, in Alaska on that trip then? Uh, so out in Alaska, um, that was a trip that we did. So part of it was trekking. So we tracked in the Wrangells National Park um, over eight days. So we did a route that had not been done for many, many years before. Um, and only very few groups had been into that area. So we were dropped in by plane and we essentially had to trek out to a, a trailhead. Um, and there weren't really any evacuation options there was nowhere a plane could get in to get us um, in between that trek um, so that was very fun um, and then once we finished off the trekking stage we moved on to our um, canoeing stage um, and we canoed the Noatak River which is up in the Arctic Circle um, over two and a half weeks um, again we were dropped in by a little float plane um, with all of our stuff for two and a half weeks and then canoed out to uh, the town on the coast um, Noatak um so both very remote locations um and very enjoyable yeah that sounds really good fun and was that with with a bunch of clients as well or was it more with uh sort of friends and things what was it commercial um, well, I would, um, yeah so it was a um it was a youth expedition so it was through a charity mm-hmm. i've been involved in since i was at school so the dorset expeditionary society which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore um but um i was there uh, helping lead that trip but also overseeing some of the medical side of it Oh, excellent. That's that's really good. Yeah, I guess that's uh, something that seems to be happening, well, un- understandably, I guess, at the moment, a lot of um, sort of smaller charities and outdoor activity centres really struggling a lot at the moment, given what's happening with uh, with COVID and, and the way that uh, it's much harder to run these kind of group activities at the moment, isn't it? Have you, have you found that similar up in Scotland as well? Yeah, I think all over um, out 
outdoor um, sector is struggling at the moment. Um, and especially we see a lot in the, in the media at the moment about trying to save um, the outdoor centres, which I think are really important for young people and um, inspiring them to go on um, to do these kind of trips. Um, also, I've seen, so in the case of that, um, small charity, um, lots of these smaller charities are being overtaken by bigger commercial organisations. Um, so it used to be that maybe a few teachers in a school would set up a small charity and take people away, but it's much harder for them to um, continue to do that now when they're competing against such large organisations. Um, so I have seen that across the board. And I guess that's something for listeners to sort of be aware of when choosing to uh, sort of get involved with companies and uh, work as expedition medics. It's important to look at, I suppose, the principles of of what an organisation sort of stands for and what people are getting out for it. Because I, I, I agree sort of with what you said. I think the whole personal development thing, particularly with youth expeditions and, and that sort of thing, is, re- is really important, giving people these opportunities that they might not otherwise get. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, on a personal level, that's the only reason how I've ended up probably where I am today, because I happened to go to a school where they did do overseas expeditions. And although I'd never thought about doing anything like that when I was 16, 17, I was given that opportunity. Um, and I think it's really changed then the the kind of career that I've now had um, and the opportunities I've had since. Um, so I think it's important that other people get a similar opportunity to do these things. Yeah, definitely. And, and that links in with something I believe you're involved with, with BBC Scotland uh, in, in Greenland. Yes, yeah. So there was a four-part uh, documentary called Arctic Academy, um, which was based on one of our expeditions to Greenland. So again, with a, um, a charity based in Scotland, um, working with young people. Um, and uh, the charity is called Polar Academy, yeah, and it aims to inspire young people through exploration. So taking those kind of shy um, 13 to 16-year-olds, almost kind of invisible in their class, um, and then turning them into um, kind of leaders and role models for the future. Future, uh, by giving them the opportunity to go out to Greenland to participate in the expedition um, and the BBC documentary um, was focused around that looking at the selection process for the expedition their training and then the expedition in Greenland itself and uh, did you see a lot of changes I mean it's similar with some of the work I've done with British exploring you often have it, it's incredible watching all these sort of young people come together who don't know each other often as you say a bit, a bit shy and they they develop so much even if it's over quite a short period of time yes yeah you see so much development especially from when yeah they're first first selected to go on the trip and they might be very shy and nervous um, and then seeing them at the end of the trip and even afterwards so these children go in to um, speak to other schools afterwards about their experiences so they're delivering um, presentations to large numbers of people something they would have never have done beforehand um, so it's great to see that um, development um, and to see those um, young people grow yeah, definitely. And, and so Greenland's a place I think you, you frequent fairly, fairly regularly, isn't yeah, it? Any, yeah. any other sort of favourite cold environments? Um, so yeah, Greenland is one of my favourite um, cold environments. Um, and um, uh, I guess similarly kind of Iceland. And I've spent a lot of time up in Norway, up in the Arctic Circle there as well, um, which is again, all similar snowy mountainous environments. Um, but lots to do there in terms of kind of polar travel and looking after yourself in, in winter conditions. 
Yeah, and I guess let's let's talk a bit more about looking after yourself in in winter conditions. I mean, obviously Scotland, where you are, has has winter conditions and always a bit more extreme. But what, what do you reckon the most uh, challenging part of, of being in a polar environment is? Um, so like you said, even in Scotland, I think people um, underestimate how um, serious the conditions can be, especially when you're up on, say, the Cairngorm Plateau. Um, it can feel like you're kind of on the on the North Pole. Um, but um, I think the important things are um, knowing your own ability, um, being quite efficient and being able to look after yourself um, because small mistakes um, can have big consequences in these cold environments. Um, and the kind of winter conditions aren't very forgiving um, and the more and more you, time you spend in these environments you learn to look after yourself and that's really important on these on these um kind of polar and winter expeditions yeah definitely and i guess um there's quite a lot of uh, human factors involved as well isn't there i suppose it's as, as you sort of touched on you don't need, you don't want to underestimate the conditions and the way they can can change and and affect you as well and i guess that's uh it's often a reason why people sort of go up to the Cairngorm plateaus or, or elsewhere and then sometimes find themselves in a bit of difficulty. And then uh, I suppose that links in with one of your, your other roles with Mountain Rescue. Yeah, yeah. So um, I do a lot of work with Mountain Rescue in Scotland. So I'm a doctor in a local team um, and um, also oversee medical training for Scottish Mountain Rescue. So training non-healthcare professionals up to deliver a high level of first aid, um, which is what we rely on a lot because we don't have a lot of doctors, nurses and paramedics within our teams. So a lot of it is kind of advanced first aid that we're delivering. Um, and yeah, it does mean that we do, you know, winter's our busiest time. Um, this winter, I foresee it being particularly busy with lots more people out exploring the hills um, and we do find people go out and maybe uh, you know the, the weather can completely change you can go out on a nice sunny day and then it becomes a complete blizzard and you've got a complete whiteout and you can't see anything um, so then you need you know skills in terms of navigating um, you need all the right kit to be able to look after yourself and decision making is really important in winter as well and I think that's what comes with experience that some people lack is knowing when when is the time to turn back or when is the time to change your plan um, and like you said that's when all the human factors come into it yeah I guess it's um it's that square isn't it when you're sort of consciously competent and then unconsciously competent and then you you sort of don't know what you're potentially getting into because you just don't know the environment necessarily yeah um, which mm -hmm. is always a bit a bit of a tricky one and so I guess in in the winter your the main issues you come across is normally very cold people is it hypothermia that sort of thing yeah so in um in scotland so we see a lot of um mild and moderate hypothermia um luckily we don't see so much serious hypothermia um but we do see a lot of cold people that become disorientated unable to function um become you know lost and disorientated and they do need help um so that would be our kind of our biggest thing that we do see in in scottish winter within mountain rescue and have you been involved with more cases of, I suppose, more severe hypothermia on any of your trips uh, abroad? Unfortunately not, no. Um, I think things have often been picked up early enough that we've been able to prevent conditions getting worse. Um, so being aware of what the signs and symptoms are for your mild hypothermia um, and managing those quite quickly and efficiently um, so things don't deteriorate and get a lot worse. 
Yeah. And I guess for people listening, because hypothermia can, I guess, particularly in in settings where there's lots of other things going on, some of the early signs can, can be a bit, a bit more subtle, can't they? Yeah, they can. So we often refer to the Swiss staging um, system for hypothermia. So your type one, your mild hypothermia uh, would just be, you know, you're shivering um, you've still got your kind of full conscious level, um, but you're starting to feel cold. Um, type two is uh, your kind of more moderate hypothermia. And that's when your conscious level starts to change. Um, so I often refer to it as the umble stage. So you stumble, fumble, mumble, grumble. Um, and that's the kind mm. of stage that sometimes isn't picked up on. Um, and that's when people start doing slightly strange things, like they'll be taking off clothes, even though they're, they're cold. Um, they'll be starting to make irrational decisions. Um, and they're, they're, that's the stage you really want to pick up on, because at that point, you still can warm someone up um, and um, prevent further hypothermia. Um, but if that goes unnoticed, then you can quickly become uh, more hypothermic um, and um, lose all consciousness. Um, so that's the kind of important key stage. Yeah, no, definitely. And um, I suppose when you do come across, um, I suppose, luckily, luckily, no severe, say no severe patients touch with at the moment, but uh, when you come across more of the mild and, and moderate cases, um, what's the best way of, of managing these patients, particularly when they're obviously out in um, pretty cold, often remote environments? Um, so warming people up, so um, doing just really simple things like putting on extra layers, insulating them from the floor, um, you know, sugary warm drinks and sugary food, um, all to boost energy and get people warm so they've got the energy to be able to warm themselves up. Um, those are the kind of simple things. Uh, we try and move people if we can, um, because that's going to make them warmer than, you know, getting them to sit around and wait maybe for a stretcher or um, other things. Um so if they can get them moving slowly um, and encouraging people to move, if we're maybe speaking to them on the phone and they are getting cold from a mountain rescue point of view, we might be encouraging them to move down to another point um, that we can then access them. Um, so that would be our main kind of management of hypothermia in the hills. Yeah, I guess yeah, a lot of it depends on, I suppose, why they've got cold in the first place. Yeah. If they've yeah. injured themselves or something like that, obviously the situation would be a bit different, I guess. Yes. And I suppose something that I suppose a lot of people maybe might not appreciate when going out in in sort of Scotland, because it, it seems fairly mild compared with, I don't know, going uh, into a sort of a high mountainous landscape or where there's a much more snow is the risk of uh, avalanches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um And um do you get a lot of a lot of people who have sort of gone out and not not really prepared or, or they don't understand the, the risks potentially? Um, I think so in Scotland, certainly. Um, and even speaking to international colleagues in mountain rescue teams, they're quite surprised we actually do get avalanches and they're mountain people. Um, so, uh, um, and I think when you mention kind of avalanche to lots of people um, in the UK, they don't believe we do get them in Scotland, but we certainly do. Um, no, you think of when you're going skiing, <laughs> don't you? Yeah, also. you think of like, you know, big alpine places and um, skiing. Yeah. Um, and I think generally people are quite well prepared in Scotland if they're going ski touring um i think there's good education around taking out um transceiver shovel probe in uh when you're skiing but i don't think there's as good education um for climbers and walkers although we are getting there it's improving um 
And I think more and more people are aware that avalanche is a risk um, and they do need to take out potentially um, extra equipment um, and also understand the terrain, understand the risks, know what terrain to go into, uh, what areas to avoid because of avalanche. Um, and there's lots of courses now available for people to do. So I instruct for Glenmore Lodge. So I do deliver um, winter and avalanche courses over the winter. Um, and, you know, people are keen to learn and it's good that there are more courses available for them to understand these risks. Yeah, de- well, definitely. I mean, uh, the Glenmore Lodge, uh, one of their winter courses is on my, on my. Uh, I've actually got a browser tab open as we record this. Um, it's like leftover from like a few days ago when I've been looking at when I can do one. So I may well see you there. Excellent, um, yeah. Because, yeah, I think that's uh, that's something that I want to get a bit more experience in. And it, it's uh, rather than just go out for a wander about, it's good to have a bit of a bit be a bit better prepared I suppose yeah yeah, it's always better to prevent these things happening and lots of it's about making those decisions um so that the avalanche aware the um Scottish avalanche information service um information is really good online um and there's lots of useful um resources there Um, and we're obviously very lucky as well that we do have an avalanche forecasting system in Scotland uh, which does help us in making decisions but it's important that you understand the terrain and the snowpack um, and can make decisions yourself when you're out and about too so doing courses and getting more information is really good yeah and well yeah well I look forward to hopefully doing that it obviously depends a lot on uh, various different rules and how the Mm -hmm. next few months uh, are going to uh, pan out I suppose you mentioned that uh, for yourself some some potentially some more expedition things are starting to uh, starting to emerge what sort of thing is uh, is on the horizon do you think um, so certainly work back in Scotland is up and running. So I've been running some kind of navigation and trail running courses and looking into the winter. We'll be doing some winter work in Scotland. Um, some of the bigger trips that I had planned, I have made decisions to postpone them for other years. So some personal trips I wanted to do, like crossing the ice cap in Greenland, we were going to go out and do in May. But we're going to put that on hold just until the world stabilizes a little bit and travels a little bit easier. Um, so, but things are starting to look more hopeful for maybe next summer. Um, but it's very difficult time to plan at the moment, um, with all the uncertainties. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, I completely get where you're coming from. Lots of, lots of things being postponed, but I think, uh, my belief at least, and I, I wonder if you agree is that, uh, either alongside COVID or once things improve a bit, that I think expedition medicine and travel medicine, is going to be more relevant rather than than less relevant because I think there's going to be more of an appreciation of the medical risks associated with these things. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think there's going to be um, extra work in terms of assessing risk with COVID um, and um, even, you know, if they're with the new normal, um, there might be extra things for us to do yeah. within, these, within these teams in terms of uh, analysing that and looking at the risks associated with um, infection. Um, and I think people are, you know, people have discovered the outdoors and we're seeing loads more people out in the hills in Scotland. Um, people have been inspired to do more things out and about. Um, and so I think that will, you know, that will continue on uh, with people wanting to, you know, do more expeditions and, and more outdoor things. Um, so I certainly don't think um, we'll be lacking in work in the future. Well, fingers crossed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, certainly in uh, in the Brecon Beacons where I am, the whole world is uh, is always kind of queuing up to go up uh, 
kind of Arnon Norway or sort of the other bigger hills, which obviously are pretty small still compared with the with the ones in Scotland. I guess Scotland's a bit further away, so maybe it's not not quite as busy and there's there's much more more mountains around. But it, it is interesting to see how people are, I suppose, because they can't travel anywhere else, that are just are rediscovering sort of the UK and, that, and sort of some of its uh, more remote parts, which is very good, but I do worry a bit about uh, the human impact on some mm-hmm. of these areas. Yeah, definitely. And we're seeing it up here. Um, even some of the local hills to me where I'd never normally see anyone, you know, you're seeing um, not only people there, but you're seeing evidence that people have been there with litter being left. Unfortunately, um, there has been issues with um, uh, human waste and toileting in the Cairngorms National Park. And there's been lots of big um, pushes in terms of educating people about best practice um, with those things. So I think, you know, there is a bit of a learning curve, um, but it's good it's exciting to see more people out in out and about in the hills um and not just you know at home or in the towns so um it's good but it just means that we do need to focus a bit on educating people yeah very good and um yeah no it's been good i guess we're sort of coming to the end now of our, our sort of a whistle stop tour through a bit of hypothermia and uh sort of a bit of uh, a bit of what you do it's just been really good um is there anything else that you would recommend, I suppose, in terms of people who are, are wanting to get into expedition medicine, perhaps if they if they are, are looking for their first trip and any suggestions at all? Um, so interestingly, I'm often asked this, and I think the biggest bit of advice I have is just to become familiar with the environments that you want to work in. Um, if you're struggling yourself, you're never going to be able to look after anyone else. Um, so just being you know, confident and happy in the environments that you want to work in um, and the rest will all fall in place. Um, so it's not just the medicine that's the big part of it. It's the, the actual skills that you need to operate in the environments that you want to work in. Um, and that's yeah definitely the most yeah no, that's yeah and I guess a lot of it that's kind of underappreciated as well is is the whole kind of uh, the team dynamic and uh, it's it's a lot of stuff about kind of managing groups you know when you're tired when you're not maybe in your usual environment as well and, and thinking about all that and the medicine is usually um, fairly sort of uh, there's a bit of triage, a bit of first aid type stuff, but often it's uh, it's managing all the other people around you and all those other factors that you've maybe not even thought about. Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's lots of the kind of the, the leadership and the management of those people um, and their expectations as well. Um, but you'll be able to do a much better job if you're very happy and very comfortable um, and not overly challenged by the environment that you're in. Um, so yeah, just getting lots of experience, whether it be that you want to go to the jungle or the mountains or cold areas, just getting lots of your own experience in, in those areas will be really beneficial to um, later on uh, being a medic on those expeditions. Some very wise words. Well, thanks for joining me on uh, the Wilderness Medic podcast. Um, it's been really interesting to to chat. And uh, who knows, maybe I will see you up in Scotland in uh, you know in the next few months. We will we'll have to see. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, and thank you very much for inviting me to join you. It's been great to chat. If you've enjoyed listening to our podcast, then check out our website www.thewildernessmedic.com. If you're interested in being a guest on a future episode or writing a blog for us, then do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media. Until next time, take care.